Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. Well, this morning we are continuing our series through the book of Exodus as we've been looking at the life of Moses. And this morning we get to uh, the somewhat the climax of the story. Uh, We are going to be looking at the plagues that God brings upon Moses. This is a a passage that you've likely heard before. Maybe you've seen it in a a movie. And uh, but so, but I need to give you a heads up because. we, I had to make a choice. Either we preach a sermon on every plague, which would be 10 weeks of plagues over the next 10 weeks, uh, or we preach one sermon on the role of the plagues in this story. So uh, you can thank me later, decide to have mercy on you and not preach 10 sermons on the plagues. Um, and, but we'll just look at, we're just going to focus on the plagues today. Uh, but I'm also uh, going to have mercy on you and not read the entire account of all of the plagues. So we're going to read the, the account of the first plague, but our sermon's going to focus on really all of the plagues and the role that they have in this story. So I invite you to please stand as we read from Gen- uh, sorry, Exodus chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile and meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking the water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we know that there are uh, many passages in the scriptures that are designed for our comfort, and other passages that have another effect, 
another intended effect, and that even cause us to tremble before you. Lord, as we read about these fearful plagues that you brought on the people of Egypt, we pray that you would help us to respond in the way that you want us to, to tremble before your glory, your majesty, and your justice, and to seek shelter in the person of Christ. And all of this we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, when you think of God, my guess is that there are a lot of different images that come to mind. We think of God primarily as Father, God as Creator, God as Shepherd, like we heard about in our call to worship this morning, or as that famous Psalm 23 refers to Him. But what about God as Judge? About God as Judge. Admittedly, I think for many of us, God as judge is not the first thing that comes to mind when we think about God. Why is that? Well, on one hand, thinking about God as our judge makes us uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable when we are the ones in the judgment seat. Uh, One of the most common verses I hear quoted from the Bible are Jesus' words from Matthew 7, where Jesus says, "'Judge not, lest you be judged.'" Almost everybody seems to know that verse. So if you're ever feeling judged, it's like, hey, don't judge me. Jesus says, don't judge me. And so we're, we're uncomfortable with the idea that God could be our judge. But on the other hand, we are also attracted to the idea of justice. We like the idea of justice. I don't know if they have these types of shows here in Columbia, but in the States, uh, you have shows like Judge Judy which has been around for 25 seasons, believe it or not. And all that happens in the show of Judge Judy is Judy judges people. And a lot of people like to watch Judy judge people because she brings down the hammer of justice on the people that that do wrong and that are cheating people and and all of that. But uh, we love the idea of justice when it's somebody else in the judgment seat. When our insurance company says, you know what, we're not going to pay that claim that you've given to us, we want justice. If someone steals from us, we want justice. So we have this uneasy relationship with the idea of God being a judge. And so our passage today is about God's judgment. It's about God's justice. Back in Genesis 15, uh, God promised Abraham that he would bring judgment on the nation that the Israelites serve. And here we finally see him make good on that promise to bring judgment on Egypt after 400 years. But what should we make of that judgment? How do we think about that in our own lives? What, what difference does the fact that God is a judge make for us today here in the 21st century? Well, t- today I want us to see four things that are, uh, that are true about God as judge. And then I want us to apply that in two ways to our lives today. Sounds like somebody's getting justice outside. Maybe we can, uh, maybe that'll stop. Thank you. Um, All right, four things about God as judge. First, it's a very simple point, and it is God is a judge. God is a judge. Um, We might be uncomfortable with that, but the Bible teaches it very clearly. Uh, We see that in two ways. We see him act as a judge, and we see him called a judge. 
Here in uh, Egypt, uh, it, it is very clear that he is bringing justice as a judge. And back in Exodus 6, God tells Moses, I will deliver you from slavery to them, to the Egyptians, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So when we see these plagues, he's, uh, God is calling them judgment. God judges Adam and Eve in the garden after they sin and he sends them out of the garden. We see him judge Sodom and Gomorrah back in the book of uh, Genesis chapter 19. He judges the people of Israel later in the Bible as he exiles them to Assyria and to Babylon. King David in the Psalms in Psalm 51, after he sins against God with Bathsheba, writes this. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Uh, we not only see him act like a judge in all of those instances, we, all, we also see, hear him called a judge. Uh, Abraham calls God the judge of all the earth. In Judges 11, Jephthah says, The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. So again and again, we hear him called judge and we see him act like a judge. But maybe you're thinking, well, that's, that's, the, that's all Old Testament, Right? I mean, doesn't, doesn't, when we get to the New Testament and God becomes sort of kinder and nicer and he, he, the, the idea of judgment kind of fades into the background? Not at all. In fact, if, if anything, the idea of God being a judge becomes more and more prominent in the New Testament than it was in the Old Testament. Um, in Acts chapter 10, Peter is preaching to the Gentiles and he says, uh, and he has commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, that is Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Paul in Acts chapter 17 says this, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What's he saying? God has appointed a day when he will judge the world and who's going to be the judge? Jesus. In Revelation, we see a vision of the souls who have lost their lives because of their uh, trust in Jesus, because of their confession of Jesus. And they're crying out to God, to the Lamb who's seated on the throne. And they say this, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? It's very clear. God is a judge. Jesus, the one who fed the 5,000, who healed the sick, who gave sight to the blind. Jesus is the judge at the end of history. So that's the first thing I want us to see is very clearly that God is a judge. Secondly, I want you to see that God is your judge. God is your judge. God is my judge. God is our judge. You know, uh, we, we may accept the idea, okay, well, it's very clear God is a judge, but does that mean that that I'm under his jurisdiction? What we see here is that God's jurisdiction, his justice, is universal. There's not a part of the earth that is outside of his jurisdiction. Where do we see that in this passage? Well, we see it in the fact that the Egyptians believed that each god had jurisdiction over a certain part of nature. So you had a god of the Nile, you had a god of the sun, you had a god of the moon. And really, the only gods that you needed to be concerned about were the gods that affected your particular profession or your particular life. And so, for example, if you were a fisherman, the god of the Nile would have been someone that, that would be very important for you to keep happy. And so you would offer sacrifices to the god of the Nile, and uh, you would make sure that he was pleased with you so that he would give you lots of fish. 
And so did you notice that when uh, uh, Moses goes out to meet Pharaoh, God tells him to go out in the morning when Pharaoh goes down to the Nile. What was Pharaoh doing there at the, in the morning? He was going down to offer sacrifice and prayers to the God of the Nile to make sure that he would, make sure that he would protect him. That was something that the Pharaohs would do early in the morning. But in these plagues, what God is doing is he's communicating to the Egyptians and particularly to Pharaoh those gods that you believe are in control of the Nile, the sun, and the moon, and your crops, and, and your livestock, they don't exist. I have jurisdiction over all of those areas of your life. And so, Pharaoh, you don't owe obedience and sacrifices to them. You're under my jurisdiction. And in each of these plagues, God takes something that would have naturally happened over the course of life in Egypt, and he intensifies it at the command of Moses. So, for example, the, the river Nile would go down and up like every other river throughout the course of the year. And when it would go up, when it would uh, go up, it would turn red, and it would become difficult to drink. It would not be great to drink. And so this was something that was part of their life. Anyway, this, this water turning red like blood. But the difference here is that God makes it much worse with all the fish dying. And he does it at the command of Moses when Moses strikes it with his rod. Same with frogs, flies, gnats. Those are all things that were part of, of life in Egypt. But what happens here is that whenever Moses says, turn them on, they get much more intense than they ever were, and then he could turn them off with the wave of his hand. And so he's showing Pharaoh, look, these things that, that happen in your everyday life are under my control. To give you an example, it would be like today a, an embarrassing picture of you going viral on, on, online, on all over social media. But, uh, but it would be like you know, someone snapping their fingers and it goes out and a million people see it all at once and you go, oh my gosh, my picture's out there and then they snap their fingers again and it goes away. It would be something much more intense, but it would be something that, would, that, that could in theory happen in your life, but at the snap of a finger, at the wave of a hand. It's a way of God communicating to Pharaoh, I am your judge, you're accountable to me. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes this. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. No one gets a pass. Not the greatest or the least among us. God's judgment will be universal, and every single one of us lives under his jurisdiction. So God is a judge, and he's your judge. My judge. Third thing I want you to see is that God is a thorough judge. God's a thorough judge. What do I mean by that? What I mean that God's judgment will take everything into account. He doesn't miss anything in his judgments. As these plagues descend upon Egypt, uh, one of the things that we see is that they push into every single aspect of the lives of the Egyptians. The next plague after the water to blood is the plague of frogs. And, they, and it, the, the frogs is, is put more, uh, the, the most vivid out of all of them. They go into people's houses. They get into their bedrooms. They get into their beds. They go into the houses of their servants, into their ovens, and into their kneading bowls. 
Think about that for a minute. You go to prepare lunch after church today and you open your drawer in your kitchen and it's full of frogs and your pots and your pans. And then, you're, and then so you run back to your bedroom and just to escape it and you pull back the sheets and it's full of frogs. You'd be thinking, is there no place that is free from, from, from this plague? Is there no place that I can escape? And that's what he wants the Egyptians to see. No, there's not. There's not, not your kitchen, not your bedroom, not your servants' houses. Nowhere is outside the scope of God's justice. And what God is showing them is that there's not an area of life that remains outside the piercing judgment of God. The, the author of Ecclesiastes puts it this way. He says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Or hear the words of Jesus I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Or think about the, the, the uh, vision that Jesus gives us of the last day when he separates the sheep and the goats. Remember, he brings up evidence for each of those groups uh, to show why they belong in each group. And what type of evidence does he bring forward? Does he bring forward the great things that they did, the career uh, achievements that they had? No. The things that he brings up are the small and seemingly insignificant things that you and I do every day, but that we forget about right after we do them. When he says, when I was thirsty, you gave me a cup of water. When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And both sides say, when did we do that? I don't remember doing that. But Jesus says, those are the things that I see. Those are the things that I will bring to remembrance. Those are the things that give evidence of what is in the heart of a particular person. Privacy is a big deal in our world today. We want to be assured by our banks, by our internet browsers, by our VPNs, whatever it is. We want to be assured that they are going to keep our data secure and that the people, the prying eyes and the, and the sources, the malignant, uh, malicious sources outside don't uh, use them for bad uh, purposes. But as good as privacy is, let us not forget that there is no Data Privacy Protection Act when it comes to the courts of heaven. Nothing, the author to the Hebrews says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Every word spoken, every dollar spent, every tap on the screen, he won't miss any of it. So God is a judge, God is our judge. God is a thorough judge. The last thing I want us to see about God's judgment before we apply this to our lives is that God is a patient judge. God is a patient judge. Think about this for a minute. Why did God send 10 plagues? He could have done it with one, right? I mean, he's given Pharaoh plenty of warnings already. Moses has been in there. They turned the staff into the serpent. There's plenty of things that he's done to speak to him and to warn him. He could have said, hey, look, the whole firstborn, death of the firstborn thing, that's going to be the first one, the nail in the coffin. Let's get this show on the road. Let's get the people out and just humble, humble Pharaoh right from the beginning. But he doesn't do that. He draws it out, 10 plagues. And each plague gets a little bit more 
intense than the ones before it. The first three, there's really no distinction made between the land of Israel and uh, the people of Egypt. The second three, that distinction is made. And then the last three are really the worst. It's the the locusts that come and devour all of their crops. And it's the the darkness that comes that they can't even see. uh, uh, They can't even see uh, what they're doing in their own houses. Right after the seventh plague, uh, God says this to Pharaoh. He says, By now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. What's he saying? Pharaoh, I could have, I could have done away with you a long time ago. <laughs> but my, purpose is, my purposes are bigger than just humbling you. I am patient with sinners. I want sinners to repent, and so I am patient in my judgments. I am slow in my judgments. I'm often a, a less patient judge in my family. Uh, when, when our kids come uh, uh, with some sort of disagreement, which of course doesn't happen very often, but whenever it does happen, someone asked me at the service, they said, hey, can you, can you tell me how you get your kids not to fight very often? I said, I was tongue in cheek. So in case that wasn't clear, it, let it be clear, let it be known. Whenever that does happen, I, I, I want to be quick to judge and want to say, hey, let's, let's get rid of this thing quickly. Let's not, you know, let's not draw this out. God is not so impatient as, like us. He is patient in giving us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to turn to him in repentance. He is a patient judge. So God's a judge. He's our judge. He's a thorough judge. And he's a patient judge. So, so why does that matter for us today? Let me give you two reasons why it's important to know those things about God. First of all, because God is that kind of a judge, we can be patient in enduring evil. We can be patient in enduring evil. When I was in college, I came home uh, to our apartment one day and uh, after walking in the front door, made my way to the back and the two glass French doors that we had in the back that kind of opened up onto an alleyway had been broken and there was shattered glass all over our kitchen. My roommate's bike was gone, his laptop was gone. It was clear that someone had been through the house and taken everything that they could carry in their hands. And like most burglaries, we never caught him. Never found his bike. Unlike Pastor Baxley, who got to recover his game from the game shop uh, later on, we didn't get to do that. It was gone. And likely you've had something happen like that to you, where you've had something taken from you that you can't get back. And in the best of those cases, those are things like bikes and laptops and things that you can just go buy a new one. But sometimes the things that are taken from us are things that you cannot just replace. Your dignity, your respect, your honor. Has someone ever taken something like that from you? One of the most painful parts of my pastoral ministry so far has been listening to the stories of wives who have been treated shamefully by their husbands Abused, taken advantage of, manipulated, left destitute 
after a divorce, having things taken from them that can never be given back. And because it's all done behind closed doors, because there's only one witness, the wife who's accusing, nothing can be done. And because the guy presents himself as an upstanding guy in public, everybody believes him. In those moments, we should seek out earthly justice. We should call the police. We should press charges. In some, some circumstances, we should leave abusive marriages. We should collect evidence. We should demand rep- retribution. But we should do so knowing that there are always limits to earthly justice. And they won't ultimately give us the ultimate justice that we long for and that we need. But because God is a judge, we can know that at the end, every wrong deed will be made right. Everything stolen and taken from us will be restored. God's justice will be satisfied. Paul reminds the church in Rome, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In those moments where you, where you are frustrated by the limits of earthly justice, where you are frustrated by the fact that the things that have been taken from you, you can't get back, remember that God will get them back. God will restore the years that the locust has taken. He will level the scales of justice on the last day. He will make everything right. Every wrong will be made right. So leave it with the justice of God as you endure evil. So we can be patient in enduring evil. But the second thing is that because God is a judge, we can be persistent in doing good. We can be persistent in doing good. Sometimes the Christian life can be discouraging because we wonder, do the things that I do make any difference Does God see my life and does he see the things that I do? If you're a mom this morning, you may feel that more acutely than than any of us. Uh, Do the hours of feeding and changing and soothing, does anybody see that? Does the Lord see that? And when they get older, the making of lunches and getting them to their activities and all the silent often thankless tasks that you do for your kids, often you wonder, does does this make any difference? Does anybody see this? Because God is a perfect judge, we can trust that he sees. We can trust that he sees, and not only that he sees, that he will honor the small and seemingly to us insignificant acts of obedience before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, sometimes for us Christians, it can be confusing to, when I say that because we can think, well, aren't we saved by the works of Jesus? How, how, how will those works play into the final judgment? Am I going to, is, is salvation by, by grace or is it by these works that God's going to recognize? Well, let me, let me just be very clear that we are saved 
by the work of Jesus, that we are accepted into eternal life because of the work that he did on the cross and in his perfect life. And anything that we do doesn't merit anything on the last day before the judgment seat of Christ. It isn't as if we are doing things that God then owes us eternal life in return. No, that's not the way that the Christian life works. But the Bible is very clear that those whom God saves, he will reveal that salvation in our lives through our good works. And that on the last day, he will bring up those good works to show as evidence of the fact that he has saved us by his grace. We get a really clear picture of this in the book of Revelation. On the last day, it says Jesus raises the dead, raises the dead, and everyone stands before the judgment seat of Christ. And then there are two books that he opens. In one set of books, it's the record of everything that everyone has ever done. Everything that you've ever done. Everything that I've ever done in one set of books. And in the other book, it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And what John says about the Lamb's book of life is that the names that are written in the Lamb's book of life were written there before the foundation of the world. In other words, before you ever had the chance or the opportunity to do anything good or bad, your name was written in the book of life. And so on that day, God will open the book of life and he will say, these are my people, the names that are recorded here in the book of life for whom I sent my son to die. And then let me show you from this other set of books what I've done in their lives to, to reveal who they really are. We show you the works that they've done that prove that they belong to me. You don't get your name in the book of life with good words, with good works. Your name is in the book of life because God put it there by his grace. And he sent Jesus to die for you so that your name would remain in the book of life. So friends, God is a judge. And one day we will all stand before him as a series of new plagues come not on Egypt, but on the entire earth. And ultimately, Friends, you and I all deserve to be under the judgment of those plagues. You, you and I all deserve to be under God's righteous justice. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ took upon himself the plague that we deserved. The justice of God was laid on him on the cross. And so friends, we can accept as our Savior now the one who will be our judge then. So let us come to him. Find the only shelter from the plagues to come in the work of Christ. So let's seek the Lord while he may be found. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you are a patient judge. That even though we deserve your wrath, your condemnation, your justice, you have sent Jesus to save us from the coming wrath and that he, we can call him our savior and be safe and have peace with you before that day. But we pray now that we would be encouraged to continue to walk in obedience to your law, to walk in obedience to your word, tr uh, trusting that you see our lives and that you one day will bring all of that to, life, to light as evidence that we belong to you and that we are your children. 
Lord, we pray now that as we sing, as we praise your name, that you would encourage our hearts from the condemning words of the devil and that we would be strong and confident, standing fast on the, word, on the work and work of Christ alone as we sing before the judgment seat of Christ. Hallelujah. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.